Amen. So let's keep uh, our Bibles open there at Judges 2, uh, verse 20, to Judges 3, uh, verse 6. We are currently, of course, exploring uh, the book of Judges. As you remember, it tells the history of God's people after the time of Joshua, when they had started taking full possession of the land. Now, over the last two weeks, we have actually been looking at Judges 2, verse 6, to Judges 3, verse 6. And at the beginning of our exploration of this section, we reminded ourselves that this section really is an overview of all the things that take place in Judges before we take a detailed look at each of the individual Judges starting in, next, in two weeks' time. Uh, we have seen that the book of Judges is really a book of two generations. Judges chapter 1 verse 1 to Judges 2 verse 10 uh, tells us about the Joshua generation that lived faithful to God. The second part of Judges, from Judges 2 verse 11 onwards, tells us about the post-Joshua generation. And we saw particularly last week, as we looked at Judges 2, verse 11 to verse 19, that the post-Joshua generation, the generation after Joshua, was a rebellious generation. The reason, of course, why the post-Joshua generation was rebellious is that they did not know the Lord, and therefore they failed to live for God in pagan Canaan. Look at Judges 2 there for a second, verse 10. The stand in front of you there summarized these two generations side by side. Speaking of the Joshua generation, it says, And all that generation, that is the Joshua generation, also were gathered to their fathers. And then it says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And this rebellious generation is, is summarized for us in Judges 2, verse 19. But whenever the judge died, it summarizes for us, they turned back and were more corrupt. This is the post-Joshua generation. They were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So today we finish now this summary, as I was saying, by examining an important question. When you read through Judges, this question is so obvious, particularly also when you read through Joshua. The question is this, why did God allow his people to face opposition in the land of Canaan? This is a very important question because we are God's people today. We often find ourselves asking, why is God allowing opposition at work? Why is God allowing opposition at home? Why is God allowing opposition in the country? Why does he do that? In short, why does God allow opposition in our lives? Well, let's see how this passage answers this important question. There are three things, really, it teaches us, and you should have hopefully an outline in front of you there. 
The first thing this passage tells us, first of all, is that all people of God are tested through opposition. All people of God are tested through opposition. And we see that particularly from chapter 2, verse 20, to chapter 3, verse 2. Now, the author of Judges has just been explaining how the people of God resisted the grace of God by refusing to repent and turning away from their sinful activities. Look at, you see that in verse 19, which I just read. It says, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices, their stubborn ways. God had raised up these amazing judges who we'll see as we explore this book together. But they didn't continue to be faithful to God despite these faithful judges that the Lord had given them. Whenever the judge died, the people turned back to their wicked ways. And the author of Judges here repeats here what he has already said, that God was angry with his people, but he does something interesting here. He allows God to speak for himself. Let's look at verse 20 to verse 22. Verse 20 to verse 22 says this of chapter 2. He says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, and this is God speaking, I will no longer drive them out before any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did. God is saying, look, he allowed some opposition to remain during the time of Joshua, not because he was powerless, not because Joshua failed in his task, but because God wanted to test Israel. And the author of Judges comments on God's statement in the next verses to make it plainly clear that the tests were for the post-Joshua generation. Look at verse 23. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Chapter 3 tells us, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it. Now the full list of nations that God chose, that God allowed to oppose his people in Canaan are given to us in verse 3 of chapter 3. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal as far as Libo Hamath. And we will meet many of these nations as we go through the book of Judges. They will be there constantly opposing God's people. The Philistines will endure in the land through the time of David and beyond. God allowed these nations deliberately as an opposition to his people. And the key lesson here is that God is sovereign over everything in your life, 
including whatever opposition you are facing. There is nothing going on in your life at the moment that is outside the sovereign control of God. And what's amazing is that God has somehow a hand in whatever opposition you are facing. And the opposition in life comes in different ways. This, this evening you may be facing opposition with your health. It may be a struggle with certain habits. It may be a difficult boss at work. The opposition may come through a difficult situation at home. It may come through a difficult situation at the church. It may come through a difficult situation in our local area or even in the country. These situations make us unhappy somehow, of course. But here we see that God ultimately is the one who allows opposition in the lives of his people. You see, if you like, the lesson of Judges is that this opposition is not by accident. God allows that situation in your life for a purpose, even if such a situation involves a sinful struggle. You see, the Canaanite opposition allowed by God led Israel to sin against God. God allowing opposition does not mean he tempts us with sin. The sinful temptations, the Bible tells us, whether they come in the context of opposition or they come from other contexts, comes from our sinful nature, James tells us. We are tempted by our own sinful nature. And yet God is sovereign in allowing the opposition in total. We should also note here that God allowing opposition does not take away our responsibilities for our actions. Israel was responsible for his sins in Canaan. We'll see this because it is the one which committed sin. Israel was responsible for his sins because in the end, God is not the author of sin, the Bible tells us. And God, because God is not the author of sin, God is totally justified when he looks at Israel sinning in Canaan and gets very angry, as we see in verse 20 of chapter 2. Look at that, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Because you see, Israel is sinning against God, contrary to his express purpose and wishes. Friends, this evening we need to accept that God allows opposition in our lives because it's only when we do that that we are able to benefit from the opposition he allows. Now many of us struggle with the idea that God allows opposition in our lives because we want to pursue our agenda. I want God who matches to my drumbeat. I want a God who operates as my employee. My sinful heart has no problem with God as long as he prioritizes me and does what I want. But the Bible is clear that it is God who is in charge of our relationship. And part of how God deals with his people is to allow opposition in our lives. Even if it is painful. 
You remember that iron chariot we looked at in chapter 1. God deliberately allows such iron chariots in our lives to drive us to the end of ourselves. It is painful when God allows opposition. When God seems to confound us at every turn. When there's a Philistine everywhere we look every morning. But we see here that Bible 101 is that God allows opposition in the lives of his people. Why does God do that? Well, that brings us to the second point. Point number two, God tests his people to make us more like him. God tests his people to make us more like him. The original meaning of the word tests here, particularly in verse 22, we are told that God allowed opposition in order to test Israel by them. The original meaning of the word test there means to prove something or to show that what someone really is made of in terms of their character. You see, the test that God chose for the post-Joshua generation was to experience war, something they had never experienced before. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test them, to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. You see, the idea here is not so much that Israel should become a powerful military force. That's not the reason. That's not what the text is getting at. It's not saying, look, Israel doesn't know a bit of war here. We need to, you know, size them up, make them a powerful military force. No. What the author of Judges is getting at here is that Israel needs to learn how to face the enemy by depending on God as Joshua did. It is the idea here is that God wants them to wage holy warfare in his strength. You see, the nation of Israel was a covenant nation, we are told. In fact, God is angry. What's the reason he gives in verse 20? Why he's angry with them in chapter, in chapter 2? He says, because these people have done what? Transgressed my covenant. And we've seen going through this that Israel was a wife to the Lord. The bride of God. They were in a covenant, married to him in a covenant relationship. And as his bride, God desired that Israel walks with him faithfully. And to achieve this aim, what God did was he prepared tests to purify them, to test them, to strengthen their character so that they could serve God faithfully as the Joshua generation did. We might say Canaan was the exam room where the questions of their faithfulness to God were asked through the theater of war. You see, the goal of God bringing them in the promised land was not so much that they could accumulate wealth, they could accumulate, they could make a large empire so that, you know, 
you know, Israel could be this military colossus that strode through the earth. No, the reason why God brought them in the land of Canaan was that they should see God's face and possess him as the incomparable prize of those who seek the Holy One. The prize for Israel was God himself to grow in loving him and experience his love. What's amazing is that God chose war and fierce opposition as the means to do it. And this is also true for God's people today. Now God isn't asking us to go out there and fight. But rather God is allowing opposition in our lives. Why? Because the primary purpose for that is not to make us comfortable, but to make us more like himself. Look, if you are a Christian because you want comfort, then that's the wrong thing. You are on the wrong path. Because the call to coming to Christ is death to yourself. I have quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer many times. When Christ bids a man follow me, he bids him to die to self. You see, friends, it's not that these tests that God put together were meant to make them more acceptable to God, but rather they were being tested by God because they were already a people of God. They were already married to God, and therefore God then tested them because they were already His people. God isn't testing you too, so that you, know, you can tick the few boxes and therefore go to heaven if you pass those tests. On the contrary, because you belong to him, God now wants to test and purify you. You see, we might say we are a bit like a groom with, a, with, with his bride at the wedding. God is our groom. He's already ready. He's already ready for us. But we are not. And so what God does is he uses all these tests to make us ready for him for that wedding day that is planned for us. The marriage feast of the Lamb. And so God uses all these tests to make us more like him. And that's what Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 to 7. Or I like to say, look, you might say it like this. You are like a car, a very wonderful vehicle covered in mud. Seen as you totally covered, and your beauty cannot be seen, and so what God does almost uses these trials as a sort of sprinkler. You know, when you take a car into a car wash, you know, these trials, this difficult opposition, they are getting rid of the dead, getting rid of it, getting rid of it, getting rid of it, so that your real true worth, your real beauty in Christ, can shine forth. Without these trials, you see, there's no purification. And there is no distinction between you and the Canaanites. Friends, we need trials. I know it sounds, that sounds crazy, but we need it. We need this opposition. Because it is a means God uses to clean the dirty of sin. In order to make us more like him. Maybe you are in a situation, perhaps you are a parent. Or a grandparent even with very difficult 
children or grandchildren. Now, being a parent or a grandparent and having a a child who does not know the Lord or a grandchild who does not know the Lord, it can leave us bitter. I mean, a lot of grandparents that are bitter because the grandchildren just do not know the Lord and it breaks our hearts. You'll be asking God every day, why is God not changing, serving my grandchild? Why is God not serving my son? But you see, if you know the book of Judges, you know that your tough situation is a gift from God to make you more like him. Keep praying for that person. Because God is using that situation to refine yourself. Really, it's not about that person. God has allowed that in your life for you. Keep persevering. See that difficult situation in that as a way to refine you and make you more like him. You know, I love what Chuck Coson, writing to Jonathan Atkins, the former government advisor. You know, he wrote to him to encourage him during the time when Jonathan Atkins was, his life was collapsing during the libel trial. And he wrote these words to him. He said, you know, as you know, Jonathan, this is Chuck writing. He says, as you know, Jonathan, I have looked back on the Watergate scandal that sent me to prison. And I thank God for it. You see, through that crucible, I came to know Christ personally and discovered that in the darkest moments of my life, Jesus was working to produce what I would later see as the greatest blessing of my life. Alexander Sosnitsky, writing from Stalin's Gulag, where he spent 10 years in prison, said this, Bless you, prison, bless you, for there lying on the rotting straw, I came to realize the object of life is not prosperity as we are meant to believe, but the maturing of the human soul. Sosnitsky thanked the prison. Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth many centuries before Sosnisti makes clear that the true maturity of the human soul is becoming like our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, friends, until you appreciate that opposition in your life is a gift from God to make you more like him, you will never trust God with your suffering and you will never have any joy. You will always be hoping to get out of your situation, constantly looking to get out, rather than focusing on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. There will be no joy, there will be no rejoicing because you have missed the point. You have missed the point that your situation, right where you are, right in that struggle, God wants you to depend on him. You see, friends, many of us are spending, wasting our lives, trying to avoid fighting the wars in Canaan. We think God's blessings are in peace times. So we are living, hoping for peace to come. But God's blessing for these guys in Canaan was on the battlefield of Canaan. 
God allowed that opposition because it is in the midst of affliction where that character of theirs would be forged in the image of Christ. Now I know this is a very painful truth for us. Because we think God's blessings are only in peace times. We think God is not on the battlefield. But God says, look, we need to appreciate his preferred method is to sacrifice our comfort, to refine us through difficulties in order to make us more like him. And it's painful for us because we want comfort. (laughs) I want that. We all want that. And there are many moments in my life when I've been through a difficult situation and I can't wait to get up. And I'm telling the Lord, no, this is too painful. This is too painful. And then the Lord has delivered me out of that painful situation. I've looked at myself and said, Lord, please, next time, help me to be more patient. Help me to look to you. So I don't need to... I can say, you know, with Paul, you know, that my weakness is your strength. You see, friends, if we're constantly looking to be comfortable... The result is that we always take the shortcut like the people of Israel did. And we saw last week the result of those shortcuts they made because they sought comfort. You see, in order for us to endure the correction of God, in order to endure Him taking us through this opposition, we need to have the love for God and desire to be like Him. We struggle with the tests God brings in our lives because God is not everything to us. Friends, we have to be honest with ourselves. Because until we see ourselves as God sees us, we must then ask ourselves, are we genuinely His? Do we really belong to God? The final point then deals with how should we respond to the test of God. I think we've touched on it, but just for completion, the answer is we must obey God. We must obey God to pass the test. You see, the response God was looking for from his people is obedience. That's verse 20 tells us of chapter 2. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because these people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not done what? They have not obeyed my voice. This means they were not wholehearted in following God, because that's what God was looking for in verse 22 of chapter 2. He tested them so that they would do what? Take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did. What did walking in the way of the Lord mean for them? It meant fighting the Canaanites and winning in the name of God with no compromises. That's what chapter 3 verse 1 tells us. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. Verse 4 says... These nations were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. The test for them, as I've said, was to wage holy warfare. 
and they failed miserably. Verse 5 and 6 tells us. What did they do instead? So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. They quit on God and went native. They became like the Canaanites. The people of God violated the covenant that the Lord gave them. And they married the women of Canaan, and you know, their, their sons married the women, and you know, the women married their, the, the sons of Canaan. And they worshipped their idols. You see, they failed their test. Why did they fail the test? They failed their test because, you see, their covenant with God was in name only. But their hearts were still corrupt. That's what verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us. They were a stubborn people. They were Christians only in name, but there was no radical transformation in their heart. They had not genuinely been born again, so to speak. But the good news of the gospel, you see, is that Jesus has come as the true and faithful Israelite who has passed the test of God. And we all want him have a new heart that enables us to obey God and live obediently. See, Jesus is wonderful. He has not only obeyed for us 100%, so his righteousness has now been reckoned on us. We stand in Christ holy and perfect in him. But we don't only have that. Jesus changes our hearts and enables us to obey him. It's not sufficient simply to say the righteousness of Christ has been reckoned on me. You must say that God's holy righteousness has transformed your heart and made you already like him. You see, friends, in Jesus... We have a perfect judge who is able to help us all against all opposition, especially in our moments of weakness. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says this, or verse 18 there says this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So friends, you see, if you belong to God, not only has Jesus passed the test for you, you have a real helper in Christ who can help you in your struggle. Look, I don't know what struggles you are currently facing. Perhaps you feel ashamed to share these struggles with anyone in the fellowship. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus knows them. More than that, God is using that very opposition. Not to make you fail, but to make you more like him. If you are in Jesus, you have a God who never leaves you nor forsakes you. 
So come to Jesus in total obedience and entrust your heart to him. Fix your gaze firmly on Jesus. Because the writer of the Hebrews tells us what? What does the writer of the Hebrews tell us in Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or fainted. So the message is like this morning. Look at Jesus. Look at him. Take a serious look at him. Because you see, Jesus has been tried and tested. And he has finished the race. He has endured the cross of shame. And he sat down at God's right hand. He has passed the test of obedience. And he's done it by focusing on the glory that lay ahead. Something that the people of God felt during the time after Joshua. You too, like Christ, must obey God by focusing on the glory of Jesus Christ. Not the passing comfort of the spiritual Canaan around us. Amen.